thank you very much, uh, Leonor. Thanks, Brian. And, uh, hello, everybody. You can see Leonor and I have been uh, collaborating, and we moved seamlessly from the games to the sport of baseball. Um, you may be wondering why I've called this presentation Baseball and the Art of Speech Writing. There's really three reasons, I guess. I mean, the first is I've always found if you give a speech a really weird title, then people turn up. Uh, just out of morbid curiosity. And you're all here. So that's the first objective <laughs> achieved. Um, the second was I thought that it's still quite early in the morning. We need to kind of get ourselves smiling, get that dopamine moving, as Mike uh, Long talked about yesterday. So it's just an excuse, really, to, to pay tribute to the sporting community for the wonderful quotations that they have given us in the speechwriting community to pepper our speeches with. At any given moment, I tend to have my favourite little set of sporting quotations. My bronze medal at the moment goes to a rather obscure footballer. Anybody heard of Mark Draper? Now, his, his star shone brightly and, and br briefly in the uh, 1990s when he played for Aston Villa and Leicester City. He did his set his sights a little higher at one point and said, I'd like to play for an Italian club. Great ambition. He then spoiled it all by saying, like Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> Thereby revealing just how much the average Brit knows about the rest of Europe. And to think we didn't see Brexit coming. By the way, we've now mentioned Trump and Brexit before uh, 10.15, so I think that's them done for the day. <laughs> uh, the silver medal in my little uh, sporting anthology goes to Martina Hingis, just to prove it's not all Brits who come up with ridiculous things, not all blokes. Martina Hingis came up with the incomparable bit of gobbledygook. I've always said I'm a good horse, but I'm still the underdog. <laughs> and has anybody got any idea to whom the gold medal for sporting quotations might go? The absolute all-time champion of the sporting quote. Yogi Berra, you got it in one. Yogi Berra, the wonderful baseball coach, baseball player, who said things which were at once both very meaningful and totally meaningless, like, when you come to a fork of the road, take it. <laughs> and always go to other people's funerals, or they won't come to yours. <laughs> I also remember... <laughs> the thing is, you know what he means, don't you? Half the lies people tell about me aren't true. Um, anyway, we now come to the real reason for calling this baseball on the art of speech writing, because it's about, it's a, a metaphor or an image that occurred to me when I moved from the world of politics, as Leonor said, to the world of business. Uh, in the world of politics, um, as you said, Leonor, I was working for Paddy Ashdown, who was the leader of the Liberal Democrats, in Parliament, the House of Commons in London in the 1990s. It was a very good situation for a speechwriter. There was always a very clear message we knew what we wanted to say. There was loads of really keen researchers who provided us with fantastic examples, facts and figures, data and so on. Um, minimal clearance in a political situation. If it was a really controversial thing, you might show it to one of the MPs who was a lawyer, but that'd be about it. And the delivery, um, Paddy, if you ever saw him, was a great orator, a great speaker. Uh, so that was always good. I then moved from there to BT, British Telecom, as it used to be. Um, it was quite a good move in that I got twice the money, uh, but it was about 40 times the pain. The first presentation I had to write for the Chief Executive of BT was to an organisation called the Telecom Managers Association, not one of the most well-known institutions in the world. Um, they were having their conference to celebrate 30 years of their existence down in Brighton, and I was in B BT, I'd been there a, a week or so, I had to write this speech. I went around the place saying, can somebody tell me, you know, what would be the main message, what would be the sort of... The, the point we're trying to put across to these people? Very little came back. Has anybody got any good facts and figures, good material I can use? Not a lot came back. So I had to kind of cobble it together from old speeches and other things I'd seen. Um, and then, uh, of course, once I'd written the speech, no shortage of people. They want to take lumps out of it and change everything and, and, and turn your beautiful sound bites into gobbledygook. Um, and then the delivery 
Well, that was actually the icing on the cake. I went down to Brighton, and I'd written, um, 30 years is a long time, because they were 30 years old, this organisation. We've come from uh, Sergeant Pepper to Oasis, from George Best to Gaza. I don't know if you remember Gaza, Paul Gascoigne, yeah, yeah, yeah. very well-known very well known English footballer, very well-known to everybody except for the chief executive of Beta. <laughs> <laughs> he got up and he said, 30 years is a long time. Sergeant Peppers to an oasis, all done. George Best to Gaza. Yeah. <laughs> and he's propelled us into the middle of the Middle Eastern conflict um, from the telecoms conference in Brighton. And I, I went away from that, that, and I actually remember doing this. I got on the train at Brighton, and I, I, I got a notepad in front of me, and I started sort of saying, OK, what's my problem? And I actually sketched out something that was like a square, because it was the process of writing a speech. And that's what kind of, that, I suppose, the baseball diamond occurred to me. That writing, that the speech thing is a process. It's not just the writing, the writing is only one part of the process. So the process involves preparation. That's like getting from home base to first base. The writing takes you from first base to second base. The clearance takes you from second to third, and then the delivery is the last leg. And what I realised was that I could write okay. I'd been writing for Paddy Ashton for two or three years, and that was all right. It was these other bits that were uh, snarling me up. And so I had to figure out how to handle them. And I guess over the last 20 years, I've slowly started to figure out how to handle those other bits. I mean, Brian said that I have anything to share at this conference. I thought, well, I could try and talk about aspects of writing, but I think the thing that I've probably had to contend with personally most of the last 20 years, is how to deal with these other bits. So this is a presentation that's about bits of speech writing that aren't writing. So don't ask your money back, there are other presentations that actually about <laughs> writing. But just to get on with each of these points, just a few brief thoughts sharing my experience, and I'm sure that you've got some experiences to share as well. On the first bit, the preparation, I see there's two bits, there's the message and there's the material. How does this work when it works well? I had a great example at BT, where the chairman of BT, not the chief executive, he was called Sir Christopher Bland. I don't know if you remember him. In, in the office, he was known as anything but Bland. Um, he was a great character. Sadly, he died in January this year, but he was a, a superb speaker, quite charismatic, knew what he wanted to say. He called me in one day and he said, David, I've got to make a speech. It's to the sort of defence community, and they want to know about the experiences of BT's part-time soldiers, the kind of reservists who work at BT, who got called up to work to, to, to go to the Iraq war in 2003. So he said, I want to know, what did they do, where did they go, what went right, what went wrong? So I thought, well, that's a clear enough brief, I can't argue with that. The only problem is, how do I find these people? How do I get any information at all? Um, and I said this to Plan, I said, well, okay, I'll kind of go and do some digging. He said, well, you might get some help from a guy called Ivan. Ivan is our contact with the Ministry of Defence. So I went to see Ivan, and in typical military style, Ivan said, I thought somebody like you might be coming. He said, what I've done, I've, I've emailed all the 120 people who went to Iraq, I've sent them a little questionnaire saying, what did you do, where did you go, what went right, what went wrong? And there was a sheaf of, of, of replies he printed out, and of course the speech broke itself, didn't it? There was fantastic stuff about the ones who'd gone on really well, there was other things about people, well-qualified engineers who ended up selling crisps in the canteen, and, and it was, it was brilliant. So from that I concluded that the good preparation requires a clear message from the speaker and great material from an expert in absolutely sort of basic terms. So how do you go about getting that when it's not forthcoming, which it sometimes isn't? On, in terms of the, the bit about the uh, message and the speaker, my, just a few things from my own experience. I talked to a few people over the last 48 hours who said they shared my problem of sometimes not being able to talk to the person who had given the speech. 
which is like a big issue. Um, one way around that I've found is to talk to their office and say, I don't want 30 minutes, I don't want an hour, I just want 10 minutes. If 10 minutes comes free in between meetings, can I have a quick call with them, a quick chat with them? And I find 10 minutes is enough. 10 minutes is the difference between knowing nothing about what that person wants to say and having at least a steer. Um, at BP once, um, I went to see Bob Dudley at a time when BP had paid out about 10 billion in claims for the Deepwater Horizon incident to restaurants and fishermen, fishing communities and so on. But, because of an ambiguous legal agreement, BP was getting stung by a lot of claims that were really nothing to do with action at all. People like an alligator farm, 300 miles in land, that actually made a profit in 2010, was getting millions of dollars off BP. Now, Dudley was going to speak in Washington, so I didn't know whether he wanted to mention this or not. Clearly it was a scandal, but did he want to kind of potentially annoy the US government with whom BP ultimately would want to try and make a deal? So within the five minutes, ten minutes I had with them, I just said, do you want to talk about that, Bob? And he goes, yes, absolutely, I want to do it. I want to hammer them really hard, and I want to say it's making the United States the worst place to do business. So I had my steer. With that one answer, I was off to the races, you know, 500 words worth of the speech. Another technique I've used quite often is to say, I don't want a meeting just about one speech. I'd like to have a meeting about all the speeches that this person is going to give for the next year or six months or whatever. And that way, you often find they will make the time. I've done that with several uh, senior executives. The one that sticks in my mind is David Brennan, who was the chief executive of AstraZeneca. I went to see him and I did what I always do. I took the tape recorder and recorded along and asked about industry trends, government policies, and then personal stuff, proudest moments, anecdotes. Because um, I find that will then bring out what their thoughts are on the key things that you could tend to use in the speeches. <clears throat> and with Brennan, we went through all the trends and so on. And then I said to him, um, so wait, you're a drug company, right? You sell drugs to like National Health Service and, and um, health maintenance organisations in the States. Do you ever have any contact with the patients? He said, oh, yeah, we do sometimes. But I said, I, he said, I've got a letter in my drawer here. It's from a, a, a woman, a mother. And she's enclosed a picture of herself and her, her mother and her two teenage daughters. And the letter reads, like, me and my mother both had breast cancer treated with your medications and we're still alive today, so thank you very much. But please can you get, get the researchers to work real hard so that my two teenage daughters don't get breast cancer in the first place. And I said, wow, I'll send that as a receipt. What did you do with it? He said, well, I sent it to the laboratories. I, I scanned it, I put it on an email. Um, in the email I said, this is why we come to work in the morning. Wow. I used that anecdote in almost every speech that I wrote for Brennan. And I sat at the back of an auditorium watching him give it, almost towards the end of his speech. It humanised what was otherwise often quite a dry industry. Uh, and it was the opposite experience to the BT experience of head in hands. It was actually, yes, that, that worked, that anecdote. Came out of a 60 minute get to know you meeting. Moving on to the experts, and that's the, the bit about the speakers and the messages. Moving on to the bit about the experts and the um, material. I find in any organisation it's often quite difficult to find who actually holds the knowledge. And the one thing I've found is it's not the obvious person, it's not the head of nuts and bolts, or the head of Europe, or the head of North America. It's quite often the people whose jobs come across that. It's the head of technology, it's the head of strategy, the head of policy, the head of economics at BP particularly. The ones who are paid to think, the ones who are paid to analyse, rather than the ones who are paid to deliver, deliver products and, and make money. Um, once you've got your experts, what do you do with them? My mistake at the beginning was simply interviewing them and talking to them, and they would say things like, did you know there's been more data created in the last half an hour than the rest of the, the, the of human history or whatever? And I realised I had no verification for that if someone challenged me. So I always asked the expert, send me everything you've got, the PowerPoint, the website, the speeches, the board papers, whatever. Or, 
if you want to, write a first draft. I have no shame as a speechwriter in asking someone who's an expert to actually come together with a first draft because that way they're putting their expertise and their content knowledge into the first draft. I'm then putting my expertise as a writer into turning it into a polished speech. Roger will know that in BP, um, the head of communications in the Middle East is always very willing, I think it's still willing to, to do a first draft of a speech um, where all the content and examples go in. The speechwriter HQ then takes it and turns it into a fully polished draft, which means the speechwriter HQ is working for maybe two hours on it instead of two days. But what happens when all else fails? When you can't meet the speaker, you can't get the material, nothing's going right. I'd like to know what your, your views are on this in a, in a minute, but I'll just tell you what my technique is for when all else fails. Find some kind of message. Find a motherhood and apple pie message. Um, so at BT, for, if you're a, a retailer, it might be the customer's always right. If, at BT, it tended to be open markets are great, closed markets are bad. So the motherhood and apple pie message. That by itself is a bland and predictable message. What you can do with it, though, is flip it round. So attack the lack of pies, right? If, if open markets are great, then closed markets are dreadful. And you can say, it's 50 years since the Treaty of Rome. Why are some markets in Europe still closed? This is an absolute disgrace. You start to sound as if you've got a point of view, don't you? When you haven't really, you're just, you're just attacking the opposite of mother and apple pie. And the final one that I think Mike Long talked about yesterday, use pie charts. <laughs> by which I mean, by which I mean, wider than that, use numbers, play with numbers. Again at BT, I learned about this from one of the speakers, a guy called Bill Coburn. He was Scottish, he was a bit like a kind of business executive version of Billy Connolly, if you know him. Um, and he once said to me, these pr presentations we do, they're 10% business and 90% show business. He kind of got it, what business presentations were all about. I once went to him and I said, Bill, I found a great statistic. The cost of a transatlantic telephone call went down from three pounds of money to 60p in two thirds. We could use that quite a lot. He said, we can use it quite a lot, but boy, we can use it better than that. And he's, he, he started playing with it, and we started playing with it together. And what we came up with in the end was this. Let's talk about that transatlantic call. Let's not just talk about a transatlantic call. Let's talk about a mini. And let's talk about a bottle of whiskey. He was Scottish, so it worked. That in 1970, the whiskey cost a pound, the mini cost £3,000, and the transatlantic call cost £3. Okay. So then I said, so we then go to what happened now? No, not quite. Go to what would have happened now if it had all gone the same as the whiskey. So whiskey's gone up to £12, which means the mini would have gone up to £36,000, and had that gone the same way, the transatlantic call, doing the maths, would be £36. That would be outrageous, wouldn't it? What has actually happened in 2000? Well, the whiskey's £12. The mini's only gone up to £6,000, but the transatlantic call's gone down to 60p. Hooray for open markets and boo for closed markets. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not finished. No, no, no. Because what would have happened if it had all gone the same way as the call? <coughs> the transatlantic call would be 60p, the mini would be 600 pounds, and the bottle of whiskey would be 20 pounds. <laughs> what a brilliant message, you know, for open markets and for a Scotsman. <laughs> the second thing is writing. I'm not going to spend time. I told you this isn't about writing. All I'd say about this is look ahead. Don't write what can't be clear. Don't be smarter than the speaker like I was trying to be with, with Gaza. Third leg clearance. My experience and how to deal with the clearance minefield. Uh, Roger and I at BP once had a little online seminar on speech writing with some folk from Australia, and one of us said to them, um, in Australia, who has to clear the speeches made by the head of BP Australia? There was a little pause and a very dry voice came back and said, everyone who works for BP in Australia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it can feel like that sometimes. The lawyers 
are going to redline everything and change the wording. Public affairs people take bits out of it. Other people wish you weren't giving the speech at all. So my first <coughs> tactic is to get the CEOs buy into a one-page outline. Then when the full text goes round, people can't reopen the question of what the speech is for, what the main message is, what the core content is. Secondly, agree the cast list of who you're going to clear things with and stick to that cast list. Don't exclude people because you do need the lawyers to look at it, you do need the press office to look at it, you do need the experts to look at it, but keep, keep, keep it as tight as possible. Third thing is, I, I've often found it helps to clear things in sequence rather than in parallel, if you know what I mean. So instead of sending a draft out to five people, send it to the one person who is highly respected but also gets what speeches are all about. So at AstraZeneca, this was the head of investor relations for me, a guy called Jonathan. He kind of got it entirely, what we were trying to do with the speech. So I'd send the speech to him, he would suggest a few changes and whatever, and then I could send it to everybody else saying, Jonathan has cleared this. And then they would be less likely to mess with it because they all sort of respected and slightly feared Jonathan. Um, the, other, the other thing I suggest is playing top trumps. Um, again, we'll know this one from BP. Um, a BP executive went to Germany to give a speech, and I kind of knew that in the room there would be a lot of people from the kind of green environmentalist movement who would wonder why BP didn't put more money into renewable energy. So I put a line to the speech saying, BP does put a lot of investment into renewable energy. We can't put all of our investment into it because it doesn't make the same returns as the traditional oil and gas, and we have a duty to our shareholders to maximise returns. If we don't maximise returns, those shareholders will, will leave, um, and that's why we want a carbon price that makes renewables more competitive. Now, the head of policy in BP said, I don't see why we need to say that. We've not said that before. Why are we saying it now? And so I thought, well, I think we need to say this. So I said, okay, John, let's um, send this to um, Manfred, the head of Germany. So I sent it to the head of Germany and said, yeah, absolutely we need to say that because lots of people in the room will be asking that question, so we need to say it. So that's what I mean by paying top trumps. It's nothing to do with President Trump, but just trumping one person's view with another one, which may be more important or more relevant. Um, final point on delivery. Um, we all know, first rule of speech writing, and lots of people will talk about this, I guess, over the next 48 hours. You have to write for a speaker. Uh, I was talking to uh, Denise last night about introverts and extroverts. I think you can also divide people, and it probably follows that pattern a little bit, into conversationalists and orators. Orators work great with scripts. Writing a speech for someone like Paddy Ashdown, or someone like Winston Churchill, or someone who's a great orator, is actually quite easy. Because you can use all the clap traps, the three-point lists, all the techniques that we've learned, the figures of speech. Writing a speech for a conversationalist is much harder, because you give them that kind of oratorical thing and they'll fumble and mumble and stumble their way through it. How do you deal with a conversationalist? Ideally, get them to use slides to do what I'm doing now and just talk through it. Problem with that? Anybody know what a problem with the slides? In my experience, it requires preparation. And these same executives don't want to do the prep. So you end up having to write a script for someone who's not comfortable with a script. And the only way I found of doing this is short sentences in their own words. The thing that Peggy Noonan, regular speechwriter, said, listen to them, find their voice, find the kind of phrases they use, use those phrases, write them out in sentences that are single sentences separated from each other so it ends up looking like a sort of Walt Whitman poem with just lots of individual lines. Um, and then if they ever ask you about delivery, the one thing I've said to people, and I don't claim to be a, a professional at this, is Stress one word per sentence, and as you stress that word, look up at the audience. And that actually prevents it from just being somebody mumbling into their beard. So that's what I talked about. Preparation, getting to know the speaker, using the experts, clearance, 
given the CO's buy-in, the cast list, clearing the sequence, and finally a little bit about, a little thought about how to write speeches for conversationalists who aren't natural speakers. And if everything fails, go back to Yogi Berra <laughs> and use quotations like, you've got to be very careful because anyway I go, because you might not get it. <laughs> so that's me done, thank you. Anyone? Doesn't matter. It can be anything. Just something that pops pops out. Home run. Sorry? Home run. Home run. Yeah, good one. Apple pie. Sorry? Apple pie. Yeah. I hope there's apple pie for coffee break. Probably not. Whiskey. Great combination. No, I think we've already got three. Home run, apple pie, and whiskey. I'll tell you what to do with it later. Questions? Anyone? We've only got a few minutes, but if there's anyone. Maybe wanting to know if David has written a home run. <laughs> if you, do you write a lot of home runs? Uh, occasionally, yeah. Sometimes it, sometimes it all comes together, like I was experimenting with, uh, with Christopher Bland and Ivan. But, but it's a team sport. I find it only all comes together if the speaker and the experts work with you. It's, you can't make a home run by yourself. That's real hard, and I had that with that guy at BT, and we were talking about this last night. Um, it's very difficult to say that straight out. I think when you very first start is your best opportunity to say, actually I've been looking and I think maybe you could do with some work on the way you speak. Once you're involved in the situation, the train's running, it's really difficult at that point. Um, what I've tried to do is to arrange sessions that look something different to what they are. So, for example, to say to the speaker, in this speech we're going to be using slides for the first time, is it worth having a run through because we're using slides? Not because you're a rubbish speaker, but because we're using slides. And actually, that gives you the opportunity to have the run through. But it's hard. What would your be, your um, technique? Well, I've tried the same approach. I've had this experience as a speaker. And um, I've tried it. Always they just have a quick rehearsal. This is a big, you know, choosing a big speech. And they, I say, said, well, I don't believe in rehearsing. Mm. And so I kind of get a bit stumped by sort of, yeah, sort of to your point, I try not to let them script that, you know, I don't give them scripts. It is difficult because, especially in the world of business, the speech is often an obligation as opposed to an opportunity, which it is in politics. Yeah. It's something that they've said they'll do and they've got to get through it, but they haven't got much time to prepare. Any, any other thoughts on, yeah? David, you use uh, slides very well, but what's your general sort of comment to your speakers about slides? Because we've seen so many speakers ruin speakers. Yeah. So what I say to them is that it creates two sentences of two focuses of attention. One focuses on the speaker and one focuses on the screen. So if you're going to do that, then you've got to use the screen. Some people say, I'll just use a few slides. But the trouble then is the audience get used to looking at the screen for that slide and then they wonder why nothing's changing. So you've got to keep using it if you're going to use it at all, is my first view. Second is that if it's a keynote speech that is about ideas and themes and has some very powerful sort of emotions in it, probably better just to be the speaker and to transfix people with the power of your personality and your message. If you've got a lot of data and information to impart, then the screen can work very well at simplifying that and making it easier for people. Anybody else got anything? Um, just a quick, that was really useful, thank you David. Um, just a quick question about the conversationalists. If they're completely off message, even during rehearsals, how do you, how do you encourage them? 
encourage them. We had often the sense of actually saying the wrong... They've just, they've, they've just got their own story, they just want to keep going there. Obviously, you need to work with them. How do you bring them back? Well, there's a lot of fast thinking. We're trying to find reasons for getting back on track that aren't just the fact that you think they should. So it might be to do with the fact that somebody else did it that way, um, that, the, that there's governments and regulators watching, and perhaps that wouldn't be the best point to use when they're watching. But it's sort of, I think you've got to try to find other reasons other than just, I don't think we should do that. Um, but it's, it's very tough. Um, as I say, if they're off message in the sense that delivery is working, I have found that just that little thing of saying, stress one word and look up when you say it has moved somebody from being simply like that for the entire speech, which is appalling, to at least looking up, which makes it possible. Any other techniques people have got for dealing with uh, situations where you can't uh, get a message, you can't get a to get material? Um, I think it would be basically to ask some questions, like, and how do you think um, so-and-so, like the regulators would hear, feel that they hear that, they get them to kind of give you the answer of why it's not a good idea, Yes, good point. <laughs> good. Yeah? Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, David. Thank you.